The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning. Thank you for being here with us this morning. Thank you for joining us, those who are joining us online as well. Will you please pray with me? Father, we do ask as we come to your words in your holy scriptures, that your Holy Spirit would inspire us, that it might speak the truth to us, that we might know what you have to communicate to us this day, so that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are a rock, you are a redeemer, and you love us with an unfathomable love. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning, I'm sure as you could tell when Kim was reading for us from Acts chapter 9, we are coming in the book of Acts and our series to one of the high points, not only of the book of Acts, but certainly of the entire scripture, Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Luke retells this story actually two more times before he gets to the end of the book of Acts, so he clearly wants to give special extra attention to it, to us. It's dramatic, of course. It's arresting. The enemy of the church becomes its greatest missionary and greatest theologian. It's good stuff right there. But this story in Acts chapter 9 is also sandwiched between two other conversion stories. The one we heard about yesterday, last week, with Jordan and the Ethiopian eunuch and his conversion to Jesus. And of course, next week in Acts chapter 10, we'll hear the story of the conversion of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And so these are really three stories about conversion. And in fact, the entire book of Acts is a book about conversion about the way that God is converting the entire world from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, as Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to him and to his reign. So today, I figured it'd be good to address conversion. What is conversion? What is Christian conversion? And to answer that question, three things. The way Saul and then Ananias. The way Saul and Ananias. First you'll notice in verse two here that the early Christians, they were called people who belonged to the way. People of the way. Seems to be a name that they had taken on for themselves. They understood themselves as people who lived in the way. It's an interesting phrase. Uh, This summer our family has decided to rewatch The Mandalorian. I don't know if you've seen The Mandalorian at all. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I grew up, I can remember the moment I watched the very first Star Wars movie in my entire life. I can remember everything, the carpet, the TV, everything. The moment, it's etched into my brain. Our family used to watch the original trilogy every holiday season. It was like one of our family rituals that we would do. In fact, my brother and I used to um, quote off to each other episode four, and we would have a contest to see who could get all of the lines right. And so I say all that because in the past nine years of being a pastor here at this church, I have never once in any sermon ever used a Star Wars illustration. So buckle up. No, I'm just kidding. But the Mandalorian, which is of course in the Star Wars franchise, makes me think of Acts chapter 9 because they have a phrase 
the Mandalorians do. Do you remember it? Have you seen the show? They say it to each other, they repeat it. I'll say it to you and you can repeat it back to me like they do on the show. This is the way. The force is so much stronger with you than the 930 service. They were like, the, the, the way. This is the way, the way of the Mandalore. That's what they say to each other. In fact, it's very similar to verse two here in Acts nine. The first time I heard it in watching the show, I immediately, as the nerdy pastor that I am, I immediately thought about this passage. You know, the show The Mandalorian is not just a well-executed you know, space western with a lovable, cuddly little baby Yoda. Of course it is that, but it's also a show about a group of people who have a story, who have a way of life, and even have rituals. And they famously, if you've seen the show, cannot take off their helmet in front of another person. It's more than just a set of beliefs, it's a way of life. And the Christians here in Acts 9, they're called people of the way. Christians are people of a way, not just a set of beliefs, not just an intellectual ascent of something, but a story and a way of life and rituals. And why do I say that? Why does this matter? Because our world is not neutral. The world that we live in is not a sandbox where we can create however we want. It is a world of ways. We are already on a way. Whether we have chosen it or not, you are living into a way, into a story, with a way of life, with rituals. They are already a part of you. You may not even realized it, but you're already on a way. Here's one. There's thousands, but here's one that you may have heard of before. And this is a way. Go to a good college. Get a good career. Work hard, climb the ladder, make money so you can have a comfortable and safe retirement enjoying the good things of this world. That is a way, with a story, with its way of life, with its own rituals, isn't it? Or here's another one. Discover who you really are. Look inside, unleash your inner person, accept yourself for who you are on the inside, and then win the acceptance and love of others, and thereby change a hateful world into a loving world. That's another way. You may be on that way. There are two stories, but there are thousands of different stories and different paths that people take with their own rituals, their own way of life, with things that you must do, with destinations and goals. So what is your way that you are already on? What story are you living into and living out? And is it the right way? Saul is on a way. In Acts chapter 9, Saul is very clearly on a way, and it's a religious way. You see, Saul is a Pharisee, but he's a fanatical one. He is zealous. He loved God's law, and he wanted to keep it. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews later in a different book. He was named for the first king of Israel, Saul. That is his name. He was zealous, and he was not going actually to Damascus to oppose God. He was actually going out of a deep sense of his own self-righteous certainty that he was doing God's work. That's why Saul went to Damascus to end this Jesus heresy. In this story, Saul was the hero. He was even trying to bind up this Jesus heresy, keep it contained if he had to in Jerusalem, even if he had to bind up men and women and drag them back and change to Jerusalem. He understood himself somewhat like Phineas from the Old Testament in Numbers. You see, Saul didn't have jurisdiction to go to Damascus. Damascus was in Syria. It was a different country. He couldn't go in there and demand that these people come back with him. He had to get letters from the synagogue here in Jerusalem and then go. But it indicated to us, and certainly to other people for Saul, how righteous Saul really was. He would pursue this to the nth degree. He was going to earn God's love and God's glory with the purity of his own righteousness. 
In verse one here it says that Paul, sorry, Saul, was breathing threats and murder against the church. There are many words, of course, that Luke could have used to describe what Saul was doing to the church here in Acts chapter nine. But the word that's used in Greek is the word breath, pneuma, directly related to the word for spirit, like the Holy Spirit. In other words, the story that is animating and inspiring and giving life to Saul is Saul the righteous hero doing God's work, ending this upstart church. This was Saul's way. And this was the thing that drove him on the road to Damascus. You see the subtle note here in verse three. After Luke says that these Christians were disciples, people of the way, then we see God interrupting Saul here in verse three as Saul was going on his way. On his way. On his own way. The way that he had decided and chosen. Most Pharisees in Saul's day, they had a prayer, especially on a long journey that they might pray and recite and meditate on. It was based on Ezekiel chapter 1. If you're familiar with Ezekiel chapter 1, it's the story of Ezekiel's vision of the throne room of God, where he sees the very presence of God in heaven in all of its bright, shiny, beautiful magnificence. And Pharisees would pray this prayer, meditate on it, hoping that it perhaps God would usher them into the presence, into that throne room, so that they could see God face to face and behold God's glory. And perhaps Saul was praying that prayer as he was on the road to Damascus. And in verse three, when the light of God's glory shines in the face of Paul and knocks him off of his horse, Saul is seeing God's glory, but he doesn't get what he inspected. He expected something very different. He thought God might say, indeed you are righteous, Saul, and you have earned my glory, and instead what he gets is Jesus. The person that he was persecuting and trying to bring to an end is the glory of God shining back at him. And Saul's self-certainty evaporates like that. His righteousness, it turns out, wasn't righteousness at all. It was actually wickedness. Saul's way was actually going in precisely the opposite direction of God, and he didn't even realize it. He was going in the wrong direction. That's where his way was taking him. Which way is your way taking you? Is it taking you towards God? For Saul, conversion to Christ meant that everything about him needed to change. He needed a new story. He needed a new way of life. He needed new rituals. And they all had to be learned. Saul has to become what Jesus talks about in Matthew 18 in our gospel reading. He needed to become like a little child, desperately dependent upon someone else to save him. Not Saul, but someone else. This is how the self-righteous, self-confident, self-certain Paul, sorry, Saul enters into the kingdom. He enters in weak. He enters in blind. He's not eating. He's not drinking. He's utterly dependent like a child. He has to be led by hand, in fact, into Damascus. He's taken off this road that he was on, self-righteous success and self-confident ability, and placed on the road of Christ-dependent righteousness and dependence upon others. It's a totally new way, a way that's going in the opposite direction that Saul had been traveling. So Saul and his story, in fact, have to die. Notice how long this fasting and drinking lasts and this loss of sight. Significantly, three days. Symbolically, even, three days, like the amount of time that Jesus spent into the tomb in his death before his resurrection. You see, in this process, in this conversion, what God was doing is he was turning Saul into Paul. 
Even to the point that when we think of Saul, we only think of Paul. I've already said Paul several different times in this own sermon when I meant to say Saul because that's how we think of him. That's who Saul truly became through Christ's conversion of him. And verses 15 and 16 here, what God says to Ananias, that becomes Saul's new way of life. It's a dramatic reversal. He went from directly opposed to Christ to willing to die from Christ, from trying to bind up the church to now suffering to unleash the good news of Jesus Christ to Gentiles and enemies of Jesus. Saul is Lord to Jesus is Lord. Because Saul had seen himself. He had been God's enemy. And God had met them on the road and made him a new acolyte. Saul was converted to Christ, to Christ's way to Christ's story, to Christ's way of life, and to new rituals in Christ. That, of course, isn't the only conversion that's happening in this passage. It's not the only conversion that should happen in a Christian's life, in fact. Because Ananias here, who was already on the way, he also is being converted. Not to Christ, not onto the way of Christ, but more fully into Christ. More fully into the path of Christ. See, the astounding thing that Saul experiences here on the road is not only that Jesus is resurrected in verse 4, that the Jesus that Saul thought was dead is actually alive and speaking to him, but also what Jesus says to Saul. Jesus says that Saul is persecuting who? Him. Not his people, not his disciples, not the church, but him. In other words, Christ and his people are totally, perfectly one. We share who belong to Christ, his righteousness and his goodness, and he shares and pays for our evil. And what Paul eventually began to realize in that moment on the road was that Christ was telling him that he was going to share all of his righteousness with Saul and take all of Saul's wickedness onto himself. Because this Saul who becomes Paul later said this later in life to a church in Corinth, Christ, who knew no sin, who knew no brokenness and no evil and no wrong, he became all of that for us, for our sake. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what happened at the cross. That's the radical grace of God that Christ showed to Saul on the road to Damascus, that Christ goes to the end of our self-chosen, self-righteous, self-focused ways that lead to death and destruction. He goes to the end of that, and he is destroyed, and he does die. And then in and through his resurrection, he puts us on his way that leads to real life. And that's what he did with Saul. And it's also what he did already with Ananias. Ananias knew this. Ananias was part of this story. He had already lived this story, but now he's being converted into the way of Christ. Because conversion in the Christian life is not a one-time event that happens and then you're done, but it's actually a constant giving of ourselves and childlike dependence and trust to Christ. Again and again, Francis Schaeffer, a theologian um, and apologist, once said this. This morning's faith will never do for this noon. And this faith of noon will never do for supper time. To trust Jesus, not just when I accept in Christ as Savior, but every moment, one moment at a time. This is the Christian life. And this is true spirituality. In other words, the Christian life is a life of conversion, of being transformed again and again into the image of Jesus. But it must have felt like a joke to Ananias, 
When Christ shows up to Ananias and asks him to go lay hands on Saul, who? Saul? And welcome into the church? This is the persecutor. This is perhaps the most dangerous thing that Ananias could do. In verse 13, what does Ananias do here? He protests. Um, God, have you heard about this dude? I mean, he's bad. <laughs> he's grabbing people, putting them in chains, and dragging them to Jerusalem. Are you expecting me to go and get caught and bound up and dragged to Jerusalem? But Ananias knows the story. He knows that Jesus takes enemies and forgives them and changes them. Ananias knows what Jesus has done in his own life. And so Ananias is learning to walk in Christ's way. Because to be converted into Christ means that we live life like Christ. I love the frankness of verse 17 here. I mean, what does Ananias essentially do? It just says very succinctly, Ananias departed and entered the house. In other words, so Ananias did it. Who knows what Ananias was feeling, what his anxiety was, what his fear was, but he went and he did it, and he became the living embodiment of Christ's presence and Christ's forgiveness and Christ's acceptance of Saul when he walked into that room. What does Ananias say to Saul when he walks in? Brother Saul. I wonder what those words must have meant to Saul in that room, blind, wondering what had just happened to him. Ananias tells him, you belong, Saul, to a new way, to a new family, to a new Lord and a better story. And I am now going to give you the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, who will fill you and animate you and inspire you no longer with self-righteous murder and threats, but with grace and love and forgiveness, which, as a matter of fact, is exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing in Ananias, living him into grace, love, and forgiveness for Saul, the former persecutor and enemy of the church. If you're a Christian this morning, perhaps you had a conversion experience like Saul's. I had someone meet me in the foyer afterwards and tell me their own story of conversion, their own Damascus Road experience. You can pinpoint that moment when Christ grabbed you and showed you his glory and the glory of the gospel when he put you onto the way of Christ. But the question now from Ananias is, are you still being converted? Are you still being made into Christ? Are you like Ananias saying, here I am, Lord. Where am I supposed to go? What are you, where are you sending me and who am I to become? Are you living the story and his way of life? Since Oliver, our middle child, um, our only son, has been little, I've tried to direct his natural masculine aggression <laughs> towards not hitting his sisters, which is, of course, his immediate idea, but to protection and self-sacrifice. I've tried to give him, in other words, a way, which is part of the way of Christ, self-sacrifice. So we read about stories. We've read stories about self-sacrifice, and of course, we've talked about it. I've encouraged him. I've tried to show him what it looks like. But you always wonder with your children if the things that you are trying to teach them, whether or not they're actually grabbing it and grasping it, don't you? Well, one summer when Oliver was younger, we were at Lady Lodge family camp and out in the hill country, and the counselors there had pre uh, prepared a game, a pretend game for all of the kids to participate in one afternoon, and it was to pretend that they were in Hogwarts and playing Harry Potter. So they grabbed up all the kids and they all found sticks that were supposed to be swords and you know they told them all these new spells that they made up like heart burnus and carne asados and silly things like that. 
And they told everyone, of course, that there was an evil Lord, and his name was Lord Bumblebee, and that only one person, the chosen one, could defeat Lord Bumblebee. And of course, Oliver became the chosen one. And they wandered around, making stuff up for about an hour, all over the camp until the very end, where they crossed a bridge over the river, up onto the side of a cliff, into a treehouse. And all the kids gathered in there, and all the counselors were kind of on the outside looking in the windows, and it was kind of dark, and it's a little bit scary. And then, of course, it was revealed that one of the counselors was none other than Lord Bumblebee. And, of course, all the kids screamed, and then the counselors chased the kids, and the kids ran down off the cliff dangerously to the bridge and then across the bridge. And, of course, that was usually the end of the entire exercise because the time was up, it was time for lunch, and, you know, the kids would just run across the bridge and go back and eat lunch. But as I watched, I saw Oliver run down the bridge with all the kids, and then he turned and put all the kids between him and Lord Bumblebee. And he looked Lord Bumblebee in the face with determination and a little bit of fear etched across his face. And he raised his arm and said, heart burnus, like that. And I love that story because he had taken on the way. The stories, the conversations, the illustrations, they had all gone into him and converted him. He stood there even though I think he was actually a little bit afraid, but he knew that this was the way to protect all the other people, to maybe even self-sacrifice himself to save them all from Lord Bumblebee. So if conversion is being united to Christ in his way, dependent upon him like a child, and if his gospel must become our primary story and his way of life becoming our way of life, then how do we continue to get converted into Jesus? Well, like Oliver and like Ananias, the story of God's gospel of grace must become our second nature response. It must be the story that we live out in our lives, the story that we embody. We need the ritual. So the last thing here, the last point, what happens at the end of this passage? Saul is baptized into Jesus, and then it says he eats food and is strengthened, and I think he partakes, in other words here, of the Eucharist meal. These new rituals shape his life now. And he enters into the life of conversion with Jesus, and he is strengthened on the way of being converted into Jesus. But let me say it like this. As Christians, we need to hear the story that Christ saves and transforms sinners and broken people and evil people. He saves them and he transforms them. And we need to hear that story again and again. And we need to let the words of God's scriptures penetrate into the very marrow of our bones so that we live out of it. And we need to lift up our voices and our bodies and our prayers to God. And we need to be here. We need to be here and be converted week in and week out into Christ. We follow the church calendar here at All Saints. Not because we think it's neato, even though I suppose we do, but so that our very time, that our very year might be structured around Christ's life. So we would live our year according to the way that Christ has lived his life. To have our attention and focus be drawn there. We are baptized, it means to be baptized into the life of Christ, into union with him, into this life of conversion. To eat the Eucharist, as we are about to do in a moment, is to have Jesus go inside of us and convert us from the inside out. Because the stories that we listen to become the people that we are. And the things that we habitually do become what we will do all the time. And what we eat is what we become. You are what you eat in the sacramental sense. You know, one of our kids used to love sneaking into the fridge and getting out a spoonful of garlic as a snack. 
And he, th okay, <laughs> Oliver <laughs> thought, he thought that he was sneaking this out. But you can't hide something like that, right? He smelled garlic when he talked. He smelled like garlic when he sweated. He smelled like garlic when he laughed. He was becoming garlic. He was converting into garlic. Are you converting into Jesus? Does his character leak out of you when you are under pressure? Is his story and his grace what gives you strength? When people smell you, in other words, the aroma of your life, does it smell like Jesus? Every Sunday in this place, we live this story. In our words, what we say to each other and to Jesus, in our hearts, in our bodies, then we go out converted more and more into Jesus and to his way. So that until your story and my story and our story is the story of a good God who takes enemies and sinners and makes them into his friends. Until Jesus comes out of you in every situation. Until his goals are your goals. His life, your life. Until you can say with gratitude and joy, thank God Jesus is changing me. He is changing me. This is the way, the way that leads to eternal life, the way that leads to Jesus. May we so be converted and walk in it. Father, we ask that you would help us to truly be converted, not only to you if we do not know you, but also if we do know you, to be converted more and more into your image, to have the quality and character of your spirit in our lives so that as we go out, we might image and be the very presence of your son to the world and to others, even as Ananias was the very presence of your son Jesus to Saul and was part of the process of you converting Saul into Paul. Father, may we be faithful men and women like Ananias and be so converted into you as people look at us and see us, they might see Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.